From Cobalt headquarters in San Francisco, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my good friend and colleague, Patricia Titus. Patricia and I met several years ago at the Executive Women's Forum National Conference in Scottsdale, Arizona. Patricia also happened to be vice president and CISO at Symantec when I was in product management for Symantec's control compliance suite products. Patricia is the CISO and the CPO who's done it all across both public and private sectors. She was the first named federal CISO. From the Department of Homeland Security to Unisys to Freddie Mac and Markel, she's the person you want if you need someone to build or reinvent a robust information security capability. Patricia, welcome to our podcast. Caroline, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very excited about our conversation today. Me too. Uh, so there's so much that I want to ask you about. Let's dive right in. Patricia, first I want to ask you about who you were before you were in the security industry. I understand that you began to study and pursue a liberal arts degree before going into the military. <laughs> yeah, it's a rather eclectic background I have when you look at it from the broad picture. And now that I'm a little bit older than I was way back then, if you would have told me I'd have been on this track, I probably would have laughed and said, no way. So I actually did. I started out um, studying religious philosophy because everybody's going to get a really great job in that. Um, and uh, after going to college for a while, I thought, wow, you know, this really isn't for me. I want to try something different. And I actually joined the Air Force uh, in 1979. I shouldn't probably give out dates, but um, and I uh, was pulled into a field called Morse code intercept operator. So I, uh, I copied dits and dots for a living for about two and a half to three years while I was living in Misawa, Japan. So a very interesting um, beginning to my career field. But I will also say that I never, I continued to go to college throughout my, I lived overseas for many years, not just with the military, but the State Department. I worked for the Swiss government at one time. Um, and I never quite finished that degree. It was always that aspiration that I just never quite got to. Um, so uh, while I encourage people, it is important to get degrees. Um, I think it's a, you know, for a lot of companies, it's a checkbox. But there are also opportunity for people who didn't, haven't quite hit that milestone in their life. Um, and it's, it's funny, when I meet with other CISOs that are around my age or a little bit younger, I find that there are more of us that don't have degrees than I had thought. But it's usually a topic people don't want to talk about because, well, I don't know, it just seems weird that you don't have a college degree or an MBA or, or whatever. Well, I think it's so cool that you're willing to share that information with us. And I think that the fact that there are many people in the field with varying degrees of formal education, I think to me that speaks to the innovative nature of the field, the problem solving nature of the field, and the fact that, you know, today there continue to be more and more formal programs in cybersecurity, but a lot of the people that I know that have been the most successful, it's really something that folks have figured out on the job. 
I, I completely agree with you. I think one of the most important things in this field is your critical thinking skills. So my, my, if I go even further back than college, Caroline, I am the youngest of five, and I refer to myself as the survivor. So growing <laughs> up in rural Minnesota, um, my older siblings put me to the task many, many times, which is um, probably why the cybersecurity job and the privacy job are so interesting to me because it is still that continuation of survival of the fittest. I love that. So Patricia, tell me, how did you get into the field in the first place? <laughs> That's a really interesting story. And um, John Stewart, who is the CSO at Cisco, is going to cringe again when I retell the story. But um, way back when I was really getting into the tech field, um, I was very young and inexperienced. I had come back to the States after living overseas for 13 years and doing various positions. Um, and I really didn't know what I want to, wanted to do. So um, I had taken a job with a company, Auspec Systems, which is a blast from the past. So they're no longer around, which a lot of tech companies aren't. Um, but I met John Stewart. Actually, I was a booth babe or a demo dolly, whatever you want to call it. The woman who stands in the booth and tries to get people to come in and talk to them. And um, I met John and several other people. Um, and every time I met with them or they would be at a conference and we were there and I was, you know, demoing the latest hardware from my company, um, you know, he would, he would always say, you have so much more to offer. You have so much more to give. You could, you can do this, you know, and I'd say, oh, I don't have a college degree and I don't have a technical background and I don't, I don't, I don't. And he said, stop making excuses. You can do it. Um, and so I attribute a lot of my success to a mentor and, and, um, he and others always telling me I could do it. Um, and that's what really drove me because I really, I, I wanted to do it because I wanted to show, I wanted to prove to them and myself that I had this ability, even though I didn't have the technical prowess that they did to, to actually get a really cool job and say you were an engineer. And um, I was super excited the day that I actually got to change my title to sales engineer. It was just a really exciting and it, it was a really cool moment. That is so cool. I'm, I'm so glad that you had these people influencing you and also that you believed them. I think that's um, obviously a critical component uh, to your success. Patricia, you've had so many interesting experiences and one of them is that you were the CISO for TSA right after 9-11. Now I understand that before and during 9-11, you were in the Treasury Department in the Office of Homeland Security, and this was a pre-TSA world. TSA didn't even exist yet. Can you give us a little glimpse into that world? I, I can. So, so actually, there was an Office of Homeland Security, but those were usually local offices. There was a bigger department that was kind of running things, but it was loose. Um, so in the Treasury Department, I was actually in Maine Treasury in the departmental offices working for uh, the CIO then at the time was Jim Flyzik. Um And I was get, what I got to do is I got to play with all the latest cool tech. And as you can imagine, having a wireless background from being a radio, a radio theory background from being Morse code in the Air Force, I had a good foundation in radio theory. Um, using that wireless 
and wireless was really just coming into the foreground. So everybody remembers the cool pagers. Well, and then there were the cool flip pagers, the old Motorola P935s, a blast from the past, for those of you who remember that. And those two-way pagers, we didn't have security for them. One of the things that we were working on at the Treasury Department was that we were able to deploy a VPN software to the two-way pager, which made it encrypted. And during 9-11, I was activated as critical staff because I'd had terrorist training from living overseas in various locations. Um, and so I was actually assigned to the acting secretary of the Treasury Department because our secretary was stuck in Japan at the time. Um, and we rolled out these encrypted two-way pagers to a lot of people so that we would have secure telecommunication capability. So unlike the telephones that worked on a specific uh, frequency range, uh, pagers worked at a higher frequency, lower frequency than our land mobile radio, but a higher frequency than uh, simple, simple cellular calls. So that meant that the bandwidth was available for people to be able to use the two-way pagers. Um, after that, I was promoted and sent out to Salt Lake City for about nine or 10 months, a customs agent and I went out and spent time doing telemetry testing and triangulation to make sure that we had wireless coverage throughout the Olympic Theater working with the FBI, the Secret Service. And at the time, UOPSEC, which was the Utah Security Division um, for Operations for the Olympics that Mitt Romney was actually uh, the head of. So that was an interesting time. Um, and it, it, it was great. So I stayed out in an apartment during the Olympics to support um, support the Winter Olympics for the president and vice presidential and dignitary visits. Very cool. That's incredible. And then when 9-11 happened and you were appointed CISO for TSA, what was that like? So it was after 9-11, after it was almost a year after 9-11, when I came back from the Winter Olympics had ended, the Special Olympics ended, we packed up all our equipment and left Utah, and I came back and, and I said, okay, that was really cool, that was a great, super experience, what am I going to do next? And the Treasury Department said, hey, we're working on this really cool thing called enterprise architecture, and I'm like, what? So I, I really didn't think enterprise architecture was in my wheelhouse when I'd been doing all these cool tech things. Um, and I probably would have had a great time and met a lot of really cool people. But I reached out to Pat Shambach at the time, who was the CIO, who I knew from his days at the Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms within Treasury. And I said, hey, Pat, you know, I'm looking for what my next new gig could be. And I understand you're building an organization. How can I help? And um, I interviewed with Pat. And I'll tell you, Caroline, it was hilarious. So I went to his offices. And it was just this big room with tons of desks shoved in it. And he said, here's my office. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> here's a C-level executive in the government who, you know, normally they have mahogany row. It's a big desk in a corner office. And here he is shoved in with tons of other people on the phone, just making it happen. And, and I really got caught up in the excitement and the concept of mission and the patriotism that you could feel the minute you walked in the building. Um, and then he totally sold me when he said, hey, we have our own airplanes. And I said, wow. And he goes, if you want to fly someplace, if we need to go somewhere, we just hop on one of our planes. And I said, deal closed. I'm on it. And so shortly after I started, I went to somebody and said, so 
what are these planes? So if you remember when TSA, when the Transportation Security Administration stood up, we were actually under the Department of Transportation because there was no Homeland Security yet, not a department. So we started under the, so what he sold me on was the FAA shuttle. The Federal Aviation Administration had a shuttle that went from Washington to like somewhere up north. That was our planes and they were old aircraft and he was, he was, kidding and I thought he was serious but (laughs) nevertheless it was a great experience and I'll tell you it was there were days that we just slept on the floor to to get mission accomplished to get IT equipment out to build these the IT infrastructure it was crazy and exciting and it was all hands on deck mission accomplished I love it I can I can just hear the passion in your voice when you're talking about these days And I know that throughout your career, you have had many mahogany desks in corner offices, you know, but to be sort of (laughs) on the ground, all hands on deck, sort of mission driven, it sounds like it really suited you. It was an awful lot of fun building a brand new federal organization from the ground up. And I don't think people understood. I mean, I could spend hours just talking about it with such a great time and so many great people that I still stay in touch with today, including my own daughter who joined TSA about eight months after I did, she's still there. It's just, it's, it was an amazing time and really something I'm super proud of. Very cool. Patricia, you've had tremendous global experience across both public and private sectors. Can you tell us a little bit about what the difference is from your perspective, public versus private. I know that you've had experience in very highly regulated environments and experience in relatively little regulated, how should I say that? Environments where regulation is not such a big driver. Right, so obviously in the public sector, when you're in a federal entity, uh, you're highly regulated, you have got to report to the departmental offices, the departmental offices report to Congress. Sometimes you get called to the Hill to testify on why you're, at the time we were using letter grades. So uh, in the private, in the public sector, we were using, you know, the A through F. F was bad, A was good. We all get that, we went to school. And if your federal organization was down on the lower end of the totem pole, oftentimes you got called to the Hill or your departmental offices would get called to the Hill to explain why are your grades so bad, help them understand that. And nobody wanted to go to the Hill to testify. Nobody wanted to go behind, in front of the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee. And so you're highly regulated to meet these compliance standards which in and of itself has its own issues that we'll come back to. And then in the, in the public or the private sector, your regulatory, if you're in financial services, you're regulated by SEC. And if you're a financial institution, you're regulated by the Office of the uh, Controller of Currency. So there's other regulatory bodies. And when you have that compliance stick, that's what I like to call it, the stick, um, you can drive change more rapidly. Um, What I have learned, though, is other organizations that I've worked at didn't have a lot of federal oversight or regulation or government oversight and regulation. doesn't matter if in the U.S. or another country. Uh, What I have found, though, is you can be in a highly regulated environment and still not have people buying into the cybersecurity and privacy programs. I know that sounds hard to believe, but... 
you really have to work hard at translating what you're doing into a value proposition for your business to say, here's what I'm going to save you if we have a data breach, not here's what you're going to spend if we have a data breach. And so you're, the language and the way you approach things between the private and the public sector are very different. Where the government is willing to accept the term insider threat, many corporate environments, the culture alone has made me change the terminology of my program from insider threat to the employee protection program. Hmm. So to take something that sounds negative, like you don't trust us, and putting it into, I'm really here to protect you, changes the value proposition that you offer to your business. So when you acquire a product and you say, I'm going to deploy this product or deploy this service, your cost-benefit analysis becomes more critical in the private sector than it did in the public sector, although things could have changed in the public sector now. Way back when we had what was called earned value management. I don't know that it ever really went anywhere, um, but it had the same principles behind it. If you buy something and implement it, implement something, did it reap the benefits that you were looking for? And it may not have been a cost savings. It may have been risk management. It may have been process automation. And so tying that back to the company, especially if you're a shareholder, you're keenly interested in that. Um, you know, you don't want people burning gas driving around a parking lot if you're trying to save fuel because that's part of your business model. So other piece that's really critical, I've been in multiple vertical markets, meaning I've been in financial services, I've been in high tech, I've been in department, I've been in, sorry, a defense contractor. Um, and, and when you look at each one of them, your standards for each business are different. And I'll tell you that when you walk into a new company in a new vertical market, Every company is different, even within that vertical market. And you have days, weeks, or not often months, but you have a very short window to learn that business and translate the value proposition that you do into business terminology, or you won't sustain your job, yeah. at least not at the, at the CISO level. Yeah. So if, if I come into a company and it takes me a year or two or three to learn the business, I have to be able to translate security and privacy risk management into terminology my company is and the business are going to understand because spending money is money that's going away from the business that could be adding value. So what am I spending the money on and what's the value proposition? And when I say risk management, risk management might mean something different to someone else in the business, especially in insurance. Risk management is a different term than cyber risk management. So how can I take that information that I intrinsically know because I love this business mm -hmm. and turn that into value proposition for the company? How do I become a profit center versus a cost center? And I don't think CISOs look at it that way. How are you bringing value to your company? Yeah, that's pretty cool. And you know, in previous conversations that you and I have had, you've mentioned your 100-day plan for starting in a new CISO role, which I imagine includes a lot of these different concepts, translating the language of the business, understanding how to communicate risk management and value. Can you tell us a little bit about your 100-day methodology? Yep, I, I'm happy to share that. And one day I'll be able to actually put it on paper and you can buy it at your local bookstore. <laughs> um, 
So obviously the 100-day plan is really the 90-day plan with 10 days to figure out where you park your car, where the bathrooms are, where your office is. But during that 100-day plan, I call it really the learning journey. So when you come into a company, you're going to have to assess the people that are on your team, if you have some. I hate to say that, but some places I've been, the team has been one or two people, and we've had to figure out how to expand it. But you've got to assess where, who's doing what. So who's doing security? Who's doing privacy? Who are doing the important things? Where do they work? Who do they report to? What are the gaps? So I always like to, my first board meeting is usually, hi, I'm here. Here's what I'm going to do for 90 days. Here's what you're going to have as a deliverable at the end of the 100 days. So I'd like to create a deliverable for the board of directors where we can sit down and walk through, here are some of the findings. And usually they're not in the, you know, we, we need to tighten up access control. We need to change our door badges. We're not at the tactical level. We're at the high level strategy. What are the strategic things that we need to look at accomplishing? The other thing is it's okay to have things that would traditionally be in the security office being done by another organization. So it's okay to have that happen. A lot of CISOs get a little bit hesitant to say, well, if I can't control it, then I can't be responsible for it. It's more about relationship building. So how, how are you meeting with the appropriate people to make sure that you're building these bridges? And over time, you lay out the strategy for what really traditionally should be in the CISO organization and what can remain outside. Um, and you learn that over the course of months at a, at a company. But that 100-day plan looks at three areas, the old three-legged stool, people, process, and technology. And when you look and assess, do I have the right skills and do I have the right people? Do I have the right processes and can I implement the processes? Are they automated or manual? And then what are the technologies that I currently have? So one of the best things I like to do, which is a big win for anybody in this field, is you come into the company and you, you do an optimization program. Give me every contract that my organization has spent for security. Tell me what I'm spending money on. And then look at it and say, wow, we're not mature enough to really use this technology that somebody bought for some reason. Maybe it's advanced analytics. But if your team can't ingest the data and you don't have a service provider ingesting it, is it better to keep that contract going and paying for something you're not going to be able to, to use or to make that conscious decision, as painful as it might be, to turn that capability off, recoup the money, and then regroup, rebuild, redeploy? And that's hard for some CISOs. It's hard for anybody because once you give it up, you think you're never going to get it back. But what I have found is if you give money back in that first year, the company looks at you. You might be spending money, don't get me wrong. But if you're also in turn self-paying, you know, you're self-funding your program, um, even the better. But cool. what I find is people buy a lot of cool tools that they actually can't use. Mm. And then they never turn them off. That's so cool. I, I think it's such an interesting mix of strategic planning with very pragmatic and tactical sort of like cost evaluation. 
Um, Patty, your story is so inspiring to me and to our listeners. I, I really look forward to the day when I'll have a copy of your 100-day plan methodology for becoming a CISO on my bookshelf. I knew the time was going to pass quickly, but I can't believe how quickly it's passed. As the final question for today's podcast, what advice do you have for our listeners? So a couple of things. First and foremost, ask for what you need, right? Ask for what you need and ask for what your value is. So if you need a capability, if you don't ask for it and something happens and you didn't ask for it, everyone will say, well, why didn't you, why didn't you tell us you needed it? So ask for the things you need, even if it's, I need leadership training, I need management training, I need more people doing this thing. So ask for what you need. Um, it's easier to take a no. And what I have found is a lot of times people won't say no if you've got a good story behind why you need it. The other one is make sure you know your value. So yes, you're, you're in security and we have the lowest unemployment rate ever. But at the end of the day, what's the value proposition that you're bringing to your company and what's the value that you'll give back to the company if they invest in you? And don't forget that you have a right to be invested in like everybody else. Phenomenal. Patricia, thank you so much for joining us today. I am really looking forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks in San Francisco. Oh, yes. I love the RSA conference. I can't wait. Yay. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen testing as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec.